Well, Paul, as we've been saying all morning, we're down very much to the business end of the Australian Open. We've got the men's and women's semi-finalists all sorted out. The women will play today, and I'm delighted to say we have one of Australia's best and certainly most popular tennis players come commentators on the line at the moment. Morning to John Milman. How are you, John? G'day, guys. Thanks for having me. No, it is getting exciting at the Australian Open right now. I bet it is. And, John, just before we get into the tennis, um, obviously uh, the commentary, you've done it for a while now. Paul and I were saying as soon as you decide to quit, we're not trying to pension you off, but there's a spot for you in the commentary booth. You're great. Are you enjoying it? I am enjoying it. it, it to be honest with you, though, it's, it's pretty easy and it's pretty uh, fun to do it along the so- alongside of someone like Salty and, and we've got Jim Courier in there and Toddy Woodbridge, those guys are professionals and, and they just tee it up and I just have to hit it. <laughs> John, is there, have you been in discussions with uh, making it a permanent fixture, obviously here in Australia, but overseas, has anyone made any queries about your availability? Not yet. They all, uh, you know, I think they all think I'm, I'm still going around playing a bit of tennis, which I am. I've been... Uh, yeah, still trying to get the body in, in good order. I played some more right tennis over the Australian summer, so that was positive. But it is obviously something that I'm interested in. I love the game, so if I can stay involved in any way possible, um, you know, it excites me. And, John, you talked about some of the injuries you've had in uh, recent times. Um, uh, at the start of the year, in January, for instance, I mean, do you map out an entire year on the assumption you're going to play the entire year or as you get a bit older, you sort of just look uh, a month or so in a he- ahead? Yeah, I think I'm at that stage, actually, just kind of looking into the near future. Obviously, back in the day when you are a little bit younger, you kind of plot out the course and where you're going to be throughout the 12 months. But... For me, it is very body dependent. Unfortunately, I am starting to, to get those injuries. I actually had a great Australian swing, a great Australian summer where, uh, and what made it great was not, not just a few decent results, but the fact that my body actually felt, you know, as good as it has been in, in 12 months. And funnily enough, it correlates with some all right tennis. But yeah, it's still touch and go sometimes. I, I was hitting just the other day in the third last shot. As we all know, you go out there and I went out and hit a back end and the back kind of got put out a little bit. I'm starting to feel old, I tell you, Jen. <laughs> oh, and your back starts to go, John. That's, uh, I'm afraid to say your dad would tell you with his soccer days. That could be the, the first sign. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's been going for the last uh, couple of years, mate. So, yeah, no. I, I hope I don't move like my old man. <laughs> John, uh, Novak Djokovic, we've seen him in particular the last two matches against Alex Dimonor and now Andre Rublev is in sensational form, doesn't seem to be hampered a great deal by that hamstring injury. Can you see anyone stopping him? Well, I was caught side. I was actually in the bunker with Jim uh, when I watched Alex Dimonor play against Novak Djokovic and that was mightily impressive. He was moving incredible. He was seeing the ball like a football uh, he was playing some of his best tennis. Now, yesterday I did watch it, but I was watching it on television. And I thought, just on a couple of shots, I thought that he was feeling his hamstring. He's not really sliding out onto that back-end side. So, so when he's really in fine form with his movement, he actually slides out with his open stance. And, and that actually was what will load up your hamstring a lot. He wasn't necessarily doing that a whole lot against Andre Rublev. So I think there is a little bit of, you know, lingering tension there in his hamstring. But he seems to be hitting form at the right time. And if he keeps playing like he has in his last two rounds, I just don't know who can touch him. 
Uh, John, you would have played him uh, plenty of times, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, when you uh, go into a match against Djokovic, I mean, what's what's the biggest thing you have to overcome? What's his greatest strength or his, or his strengths everywhere? Gee whiz, there's, yeah, there are strengths everywhere. I've played him three times. In fact, I played him at the US Open. That was um, straight sets, but it was competitive. But I, I was playing him at Queens. I'd qualified, so I was feeling good. And mm. Queens is actually quite a, a quicker grass. It's a lot quicker than down the road at Wimbledon. And you want to start off well earlier. I don't think Alex did all that, all that well. Mm. And, and that's due to Novak Djokovic because you need to create a bit of scoreboard pressure against him. And I remember I, I started off and I was up 2-1 on serve, but I was breathing easy at that change of end, thinking, okay, I've sunk my teeth into this match now. I, you know, I can relax. I can just play my tennis. And I proceeded to win one of the next 11 games. I, uh, mm. I lost two and one. When he turns it on, it's scary because there's weapons from everywhere. Uh, one of the things I think he does better than anybody else, and we're talking better than Roger, Rafa, Andy, the big four, is his change of direction. He, he seems to have the ball on a string where it's not necessarily he's going for winners, but he'll never go nearly more than two cross at a time. So it'll be mm. two cross, one line, two cross, one line. And, and what that does as a player is you're always running. You're always on the back foot. He's one of the best returners in, in, in the history of the game. Um, the two best returners I've played is Andy Murray when he was uh, at his peak and, and Novak Djokovic. I think Novak Djokovic edges him. And finally, he's, there's no one better in the game than turning defense into offense. So when he's in a defensive position and, and you've got the ascendancy in the rally, he has this uncanny ability to to find some quality when he's pushed out wide. He'll get the ball back, you know, within a couple of centimeters from the baseline, and all of a sudden you're on the back foot, and he has you running again. Mm. Um, he, he's a special player, and uh, it's the reason why he'll have all the records when he retires. John, I read an article once where initially he worked on his return of serve, and then he took it to the next level. He was working on his return of someone returning serve to him, and that was making it the third point of each game. Uh, yeah, sorry, the third, the third shot of each game was the most important one to him. Yeah, look, I think he's done a lot of return of serve practice, but, yeah, that, that third point, sometimes uh, he probably identified himself that if someone's returning with the quality that he's returning, then he has to find a way to get the ascendancy in points again. But... I'll tell you what, there's just no flaws with him. He's, he's an absolute freak. Um, and, and the thing that's scary is he's 35 right now. Mm. You know, typically speaking, you turn 35 and, and I'm 33 and a bit, but I, I, I feel, I, I, yeah, I'm nearly 34 and I feel like my body takes ages to recover. I feel, you know, it's a challenge. He's 35 and, he looks as good as he ever has before. He's moving ridiculous. He's playing so well. I just don't know when he's going to stop. I think he'll, I think there'll be a four next to his name before he starts slowing down. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, you wouldn't uh, back against him. John, just one point, uh, perhaps, before we get on to the semifinals. There's been a bit of talk about the late finishes um, at yep. Melbourne Park. I remember being at the Victory Hotel, having a beer, watching you finish very late against Roger Federer in the US Open when you beat him. Yep. Uh, it was early in the morning in New York. Is it just part of the deal if you're a tennis player, or do you think they should somehow try and curb these late nights? I think it's part of the deal, isn't it? That's sport. And unfortunately, in tennis, there's no finish time, which what, mm. which is what makes tennis special. You know, we don't just play for, for 90 minutes and, and when the clock ticks zero, you're off. 
Um, with tennis, the, the hardest thing in it is actually closing it out, serving it out. Um, it's something that actually, you know, with that that, that famous uh, late finish this tournament was the Thanasi Andy Murray one. That could have been a different story if Thanasi had served it out in that third set. So mm. I think that's live sport. Um, that happened. It, I don't think it's happened a hell of a lot this tournament. Um, but it will happen. And, and, you know, I was reading a tweet with Ivan Lubacic uh, at the end of that match, and he's over in Europe. He used to coach, mm. well, he was a very good player himself, but he used to coach Roger Federer, obviously, for the back end of Roger's career. And you know what? He's in Europe, so he was absolutely loving it. Yeah, he goes, bring point. on the late finishes. Mm. But, you know, this is a global game now. We're going out to a global audience. Unfortunately, It was unfortunate for the Australian audience and maybe a few of them involved who were playing. But that's that's part and parcel with tennis, unfortunately. It will happen every now and again. And, John, uh, the Dunlop tennis balls being used yep. here at the Australian Open. Some are saying they're a bit lifeless. That's why we've seen more five-setters. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not necessarily convinced with that. I, I actually think the ball wasn't too bad. When they're new, they're really quick. But there's not a ball that's not wearing out. It's, there's not a ball on tour that's not wearing out. So I'm not really buying in a whole lot to that. I, I spoke to Craig Tiley, actually, about this very issue. And, and he said, actually, average rally length hasn't really changed from year to year, from, from this year to last year's. He said, what's taking longer is actually players are taking longer to get their towels right now. And mm. I'll tell you what, it is a long walk when you're playing on one of the set of courts to go and get your towel. Mm. Um, I know I was playing on Margaret Court against Daniel Medvedev. But, you know, it's like a 10-metre walk to get your towel and then 10 metres back. So players are taking a little bit longer between the points and the umpires aren't starting the shot clock um, uh, right on time. So I don't necessarily think these longer matches are due to these balls. I think that I think that was a bit of food par. I think one or two players might have mentioned it, and then it became the popular thing to mention. Just on the shot clock, John, I mean, do you think um, the uh, umpire should be more ruthless in its application, or do you think there's always uh, wiggle room, depending on, you know, if it's a long game and what's actually happened in the point? And that's the challenge. It's umpire's interpretation. You know, they do have rules when you reach the baseline. They, they start the shot clock, but it's an umpire's, interpretation right mm. they've got the, the the buzzer in their umpire stand and and they started but actually the shot clock that's another rabbit hole that we can go down um it's actually made matches longer all the statistics i'll sit on the mm. player council and it's actually made matches longer the shot clock because players are now realizing they've got a little bit more time so if they do play a longer point they can see oh i've actually got you know another 10 seconds and i'll use every bit of it and and i'm the same look mm. if i'm trying to catch my breath and i'm doing it legally with the shot clock there um i'll take that extra time whereas in the past when you weren't sure uh and players were actually playing slightly quicker and the data shows it women's semi-finals today john i think magna lynette has been absolutely sensational her last two victories just see the smile on her face mm. has been absolutely priceless yeah and and who would have thought that she would have been the last pole standard? <laughs> <laughs> They've got a, a really good male player in Hubert Hercatch, um, who, you know, is due in to go really deep in one of these Grand Slams and maybe lift one of them. And then they've got, obviously, the lady who dominated uh, 2022 in Iga Sviatek. And then it's Magda Lynette that's uh, made the deep run in the semi-finals. Fantastic. You know, this is 
you know, she's been on the tour for a long time and, and she's been a good player, you know, career high ranking, I think at 33. Um, but this is game changing when you make a semi final of a Grand Slam. I mean, this is something that people will talk about for a long time with her. What was it like to go that deep at the Australian Open? She's got it up. She's got a real stern test, right? Uh, probably one of the favourites for the tournaments. Um, so she's going to have a work cut out. But I mean, wouldn't it be a fairy tale story if she can go one better and make a final of the Australian Open? Oh, it would. And uh, have you got a sense on the uh, winner coming from the other side, uh, Elena Rabakina and uh, Victoria Azarenka? Well, I'll tell you what, um, I actually had a bit to do with Victoria Azarenka when I was on the ATP Player Council because she was on the WGA Player Council. So we would talk, um, and I wouldn't want to cross her. I wouldn't want to cross her in the boardroom. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to cross her um, on the tennis court either. A great deal of respect. It's awesome to see a resurgence at the back mm. end of her career. Um, she's playing awesome tennis. She's moving incredibly well. She looks so fit. I'm going to have to go against her, and I hope she's not listening, because <laughs> <laughs> Rubikina is playing some really, really good tennis, reminiscent of uh, the form she was showing when she won Wimbledon last year. And these courts are starting to heat up. You know, there was that patch in the middle where the temperatures got, like, just in the early 20s, which actually slows down the surface. She wants it pretty quick because she has a really good serve and she has these big, flat, booming shots. And if she gets that first strike away, she gets on top of points. So I think with the heat coming back in the courts, um, that'll suit her. So she's my pick, actually, for the whole tournament. But, yeah, we'll see. There are four really good ladies. Sabalenka's mm. playing amazing, as we touched on. Um, I'm picking a Rubikina Sabalenka final, but... I haven't picked too many <laughs> this tournament. I think, as you said, uh, uh, a lot of times you've got to be able to you know, serve out the match, and that seems to be Sabalenka's downfall when she actually gets to it, uh, getting on yeah. top but then completing it, John. Yeah, and it was something that we saw last year, didn't we? She was throwing in a lot of double folds when I was watching her um, at, at crucial times. I do think she has started to iron out those problems. I thought I started to see that in Adelaide. Uh, I was there when she was playing there, and she started to look a lot, a little bit more solid, and I think people started taking notice there because when if you take out the serve, oh, she's, she's, a, she's a hell of a player. So I do think she starts to iron that out, and that's probably coincided with her good results. Always an absolute pleasure to talk to you, John. You're doing a great job there in commentary. We know you haven't hung up the racket yet. We'll talk to you later in the year. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you.